Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week, we take our three questions from our newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And in case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education, name of my company, Social Media International Education Consulting. And we take a look at both social media stories and international education stories, both in the United States and globally, that impact uh, the world of international education that we operate in as educators in here in the United States. So we open up this newsletter every week to those that uh, are interested. We have three ways that you can subscribe. Uh, you can either uh, check uh, my LinkedIn feed or any of our SMIE feeds weekly on Monday mornings for the link to the newsletter. I'm dropping the link the, for the second way to our SMIE consulting website where you can get uh, on the subscribe page. You can add your details in on the subscribe section and get the email uh, directly in your inbox Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we also have a LinkedIn version, so if you prefer to digest your uh, international education news each week on LinkedIn, you can certainly subscribe to that newsletter. Uh, between the LinkedIn newsletter and the email version, we have close to a thousand subscribers, so really pleased that uh, this uh, content is making a difference and is appreciated. Uh, thanks to those of you who uh, made uh, uh, gave gave us some shout-outs last week at the ARC conference in uh, my in in Miami last year in Miami this year in Los Angeles uh, for uh, shout outs for the content that we're providing and how uh, useful it is and how much of a time saver it is and that's that's I appreciate that because that's the main reason I, I, I set up that newsletter uh, four years ago uh, to provide the kind of uh, news uh, that uh, you don't have the time to gather as an international educator with the full plates you have at your institutions. Uh, and I'm appreciative of uh, my current employer, UNLV, uh, for allowing me uh, and actually uh, encouraging me to continue on with the newsletter after the, I was hired full-time as of November 1st as the Director of Global Recruitment and Partnerships. And I'll be continuing to do not only the newsletter each week, but the, the, the midweek roundup travel permitting uh, when uh, of Available. So uh, it's a pleasure to come to you each week and, and share my th our thoughts on the, the kind of deeper uh, issues underlying some of the news stories that you see on Monday. We share our deeper thoughts here on the Roundup. And as we do each week, we're going to get started with our first question. So big shout out to those watching live. Thank you for uh, being a part of the conversation. Always a pleasure to have you on uh, the live chats. Uh, we know most of you can't do that, uh, watch live. So thanks for catching up on repeat, either on YouTube, Facebook, or our downloadable podcast version on all your major podcast providers, audio only, by the way. So I'm glad that you're part of the conversation today. And as we do each week, we start with the issues that um, are kind of top of top of the mind and oftentimes the news of the day. My travels were uh, what I pre uh, present at different conferences on, oftentimes are what you'll find me talking about the following week. So let's get right into it with the first topic. Is there a coming Indian undergraduate boom? 
Now, for most of you, when you think of India as a market for international students, you think graduate market, and you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, it's historically been uh, the single largest group of graduate students have come from India to the United States, uh, typically in the STEM fields, but we've also seen in, in the past uh, MBA programs, business-related programs, also jumping up high for graduate studies in the U.S. Of course, they call it postgraduate studies in the U.S., so we have to make sure we're getting our terminology right when we're talking to this audience. One of the many things we need to be uh, aware of when we're talking to different student groups. But uh, for the undergraduate market in India, surprisingly enough, it is, if you didn't know it already, it's the second largest source of students, international students, uh, next to China for undergraduate studies in the United States. So very significant difference, and we'll get into some of that data here. I had the opportunity last week at ARC conference to present on a topic that uh, is a, a fairly significant one and kind of goes under the radar a little bit. And it was uh, based, the topic was uh, tapping into India's growing undergraduate student market for international recruitment. Now, I've put the link to the SlideShare uh, version, PDF version of this presentation. You're welcome to check that out, download it if you need to for resources. I had the pleasure presenting with uh, Derek, Hen Derek Alex at uh, University of Houston and Manisha Zaveri at uh, Career Mosaic uh, Market Entry in India. And uh, by far the star of the show uh, was Manisha. Uh, she's on the ground there in India working with Career Mosaic, and uh, a company she and her husband have developed over the years uh, into one of the major players in the Indian market for uh, for students looking to go abroad. Uh, but what was, um, I had the pr pr privilege of presenting some of the data points on uh, Open Doors, uh, Sivas by the Numbers, kind of giving the bigger picture uh, by uh, Project Atlas as well. So a lot of great data points that I was able to pr provide just to give a lay of the land for the Indian market. Uh, and then Manisha really went into the details heavy on uh, what's motivating, motivating Indian undergraduates to start considering going abroad, from even direct from uh, finishing secondary school, uh, and some of the motivations parents have, and some of the recommendations that she had for how to reach those uh, students and parents better. Uh, hint, hint. So, in terms of the data itself, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, India at present, uh, as uh, in terms of looking as a a source country for Western nations. Uh, right now, India sends, right now, as of 2022 data uh, from Open Doors, sends the major the most students to Canada for post-secondary study, then the United States, so 217,000 for, for Canada, as of, as of Open Doors data, which is again 2021-22 academic year. Uh, United States was just under 200,000. UK was about 82,000, Australia about 56,000, Germany about 28,000. Interesting to see Germany on that list as a destination, top destination, top five destination for Indian students. So by far, Canada uh, and U.S. are above, uh, well above, and surprisingly so far above the U.K., which I think will uh, see some shifting numbers toward the U.K. in the coming year. And we all know in the United States, as a part of our market, uh, international student market, we know India and China are the two biggest players. Uh, the Open Doors numbers from uh, that were reported last month reflect 31% uh, of international students in the U.S. being from China, 21% from India. Uh, that number, I guarantee you, is going to be flipped next year. Uh, that 31-21 percentage worked out to be 290,000 from China, 199,000 from India. Uh, where China's undergraduate percentage of their undergraduate students coming, or percentage of their students coming at the undergrad level was about 38%, uh, whereas India, based on 2000, 
Obanur's data this past month was 14%. So as a percentage of the whole, it's not the most significant piece of the Indian market and probably won't be for some time to come. But it is in the, uh, if you look at the numbers, so uh, that I'll get to in a moment from Sivas by the by the numbers, uh, you'll see the, the difference is actually uh, even more dramatic there, but we'll get to that in a second. But if you see the gap, if you're going through the slides from this deck, you'll see that the, the gap on slide five from the Open Doors numbers reflects about a 90,000 student gap between Chinese students and Indian students in the 21-22 academic year. Now, here's how close it's getting. This year, if you look at the SEVIS by the numbers, which is kind of the real-time numbers of students from the different countries currently in the United States, you see uh, the gap has closed from 290,000 uh, from China down to 251,000, so a 40,000 drop from China in the last year. Uh, whereas India has gone up from 199,000 to 240,000. So right now there's only 11,000 uh, student difference uh, between uh, the undergraduate or between total students from India and total students from China. So uh, China has 11,000 lead right now. When we look at fall 2022 numbers or fall 23 numbers, I guarantee you that number will be flipped again. So it, that will be flipped where India will be on top. China will have uh, sunken further below. But I do think this, this is a, the, the significant takeaway from this information, from the data that shows the Indian mar undergraduate market has doubled in the last uh, 10 years from 12,700 12, in 2013 to 27,520, 22. And the new SEVIS by the numbers uh, reports the combined undergraduate numbers in the United States now is 30,000. So 30,543. So uh, whichever as a percentage of the total Indian market, still 12.7%. And that's re reason reason being the un Indian undergraduate numbers shot through, uh, graduate numbers also shot through the roof this past year. So uh, Indian undergrad market is growing. And why is it growing? Uh, Manisha had some great models, uh, uh, data models that uh, are very helpful uh, to helping get a sense of what's happening there. She talks about the rise of tier two and tier three cities, uh, the rise of international high schools, and the post-pandemic world of test optional and other benefits post-study work that make uh, the U.S. a very attractive market, specifically on the Tier 2 cities. Right now, they're in India. We all know the Tier 1 cities. There are eight of them India, in India, New Delhi, Mumbai, uh, Chennai, Bangalore, Ahmedabad, uh, Hyderabad, um, and, and, and several others. So they make up the, the metro, Tier 1 metropolitan areas. Uh, there are one now 104 tier two cities, that these tier two cities are really the driving force of India moving forward, of the drive, uh, rising middle class. And here's the, here's the number that I, I think really stuck out for me, is that Manisha shared that the middle class in India, uh, middle and upper classes in India, represent over 350 million people. Now let that sink in for a minute. That's larger than the population of the United States are in the upper middle classes in India that potentially could afford an overseas education. And they are generally looking for that. And the main reason they're looking for that is because of the lack of opportunities for the huge numbers of Indian graduates each year that are unable to get into the top universities in India. 
Uh, there's also been a correlating a rise in the number of international high schools uh, in India. Now, 708 international schools across the country representing an enrollment of over 373,000 students. And these students are the ones, hey, they're enrolled in uh, Cambridge uh, British System schools as well as IB schools uh, that represent that, those 708. So they are spending Indian parents are spending an, an average combined tuition on these secondary schools, $1.2 billion a year, based on ISC research. Uh, they're all over the country, too, these international schools, in metropolitan areas, in the suburbs, in Tier 2 and 3 cities, in what they call hill stations, little, uh, kind of remnants of the old British uh, empire. Uh, they are also the upwardly mobile of the country, the, the parents that are sending their sons and daughters to these schools. So uh, Manisha had some great tips on how to engage with these students through and parents, and she makes this distinction. A very important part of that process, they're the decision makers, they're the ones that will be paying the bill. So you certainly want to make sure you have a strategy in place to meet their needs. Uh, she also uh, made a, a, a unique point that for all the years that I've been traveling to India, we meet and when I've gone to international schools, whether it's on a tour or fairs, whatever it might be, we might meet the head of school, the principals, whatever it might be. But rarely do you meet the management and actually establish relationships with the management of those schools. And she mentioned that as a real in to kind of uh, get your network of partner schools that you can work with uh, and have potentially uh, regular student flows coming from. So a very important uh, distinction uh, Manisha makes there about how you can get in with some of these international schools and how significant and how, how much of a target uh, these schools should be for those that are doing direct recruitment in country. Uh, so in terms of knowing uh, what your these prospects and their expectations are, and that's uh, a, a big driver, uh, we know that um, uh, from traditionally from the Indian market that STEM subjects tend to be uh, the most popular for these students, but they do have, at the undergraduate level, they do have a more diverse range of uh, interests. That some are interested in the arts, some are interested in regular business, some might be uh, looking at the health fields as well. Uh, so that's uh, an important piece to, to have in your equation. So you don't, when you're talking to undergraduates in India, you don't always want to talk um, uh, just STEM, STEM, STEM. Uh, many of these students, particularly at these international schools, are going to have much more of a broader, uh, a broader, more liberal arts curriculum in their high schools that will be better preparation and more suited, well suited to uh, study in the United States. Uh, gives them a little bit more flexibility. Uh, you also want to, in terms of what you want to highlight, you want to highlight employability uh, information uh, for your graduates. So what the, can I expect in terms of uh, OPT, CPT opportunities? Where have students gotten jobs after graduation uh, from from India, uh, in their particular or in their particular major, uh, they want to have they want to have uh, reliable communications. They want to be able to hear uh, success stories from future from former students or, or current students that are at your uh, at your institution now in terms of their journeys. They want to hear about successful alumni uh, that have graduated from your institution. So think about are you doing that as part of your overall recruitment process? And obviously, social media is an important piece of the puzzle for uh, this age demographic in terms of high school. So make sure you have a presence. Uh, one pointer here, TikTok doesn't work in India. It's uh, banned in that country. So uh, for uh, if you have a strong TikTok game uh, domestically in the U.S. or other parts of the world, uh, that won't help you in India. So you'll need to refer primarily on Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp for direct communication with students. Uh, that's all great advice from Manisha uh, and Derek. Also backed up a lot of what she was saying. 
Uh, so in terms of um, what Manisha has shared, uh, it's a great resource. I recommend everybody t uh, take a look at it. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, the presentation itself is, is fantastic in terms of the kind of the meat, not for me necessarily, but from Manisha and, and uh, certainly in terms of what uh, really are the kinds of topics that, um, uh, that you need to be aware of if you're going after the engine undergraduate market. And is a boom coming? You better believe it. It's coming. Uh, is it going to be China-like where we're going to have 300,000 undergraduates from China in, in five years, 10 years? I don't think it'll get that big, maybe half that. But certainly you're going to see a consistent growth as the middle class continues to grow, as uh, there uh, more Indian students can't find options uh, domestically, they're going to be looking abroad. And if you want to share that uh, share that market, you need to be actively engaging in that country uh, directly with the schools, uh, making attempts to go to I ISC or IC3, excuse me, the IC3 conference every year in August. Uh, it's probably one that I'll be attending this coming August as we ramp up our game in India for UNLV. Uh, so that's uh, so there's certainly some real. Uh, real must-dos in the, in the coming weeks and months uh, if you're looking to build a, a platform for success in India and particularly as you look to reach the undergraduate market. So that's all we have for question number uh, one. Let's move on to our second topic of the day and that is are good international educators hard to find these days? Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I approached this topic with a little bit of um, hesitancy, uh, if only for the fact that I know um, many of my colleagues around the country have were impacted during the pandemic, may have lost staff, may themselves have left their positions because of institutional budget concerns, short-sightedness, however you want to couch it. But there was really a, general, a great resignation that impacted not just professions, uh, uh, that, that we hear about in, uh, in the United States from teachers to doctors to nurses uh, to corporate America, whatever it might be. But there, there, it reached university levels and we all felt that. In fact, uh, the, the loss of talent, frankly, uh, that left universities and colleges in, during the pandemic is as significant as I've seen, even probably more significant than when we saw post 9-11 with the introduction of SEVIS and how that really scared off uh, into early retirement or just out of the profession entirely. Uh, folks who are particularly on the ISSS side that uh, have to, uh, uh, did not appreciate their jobs being changed so dramatically into agents of the government and uh, as uh, representatives as PDSOs and ROs and R DSOs and AROs in SEVIS. So uh, this topic is a very appropriate one because it's, uh, it's called the Great Resignation. It's from NAFSA, NAFSA's International Educator News, uh, news Magazine. Uh, the Great Resignation Goes Global. And it talks about rethinking recruiting and retention in the international office as the world reopens. And when we th think about recruiting and retention in international offices, we're almost always talking about students, aren't we? And uh, the reality is this, uh, the pandemic has upended our, our staffing, uh, the, uh, what's acceptable in work permissions, uh, where you can work coming into the office, all of those things have changed as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I mentioned the loss of talent. I also think what we've seen is a lot of international positions that might have been director level or associate director level are now, uh, if and when they get refunded, are being refunded as ent almost entry level. And that is 
that's a sad sign and a sad state of affairs for a lot of international offices around the country at smaller to, to mid-sized schools that aren't really, don't have the bandwidth, don't really have the strong institutional commitment to internationaliz- internationalization. And I think that's a real challenge for us as we, as we, uh, as we face this uh, new reality of, uh, of positions going unfilled. Uh, we're in a position at UNLV where we will have um, three positions uh, available uh, or advertised potentially in the next few months uh, that uh, in two or three years are going to be in our International Student and Scholar Service Office. Uh, an SIO hiring might happen, uh, but we uh, or might not. Uh, the reality is we, we, we aren't able to fully staff up as quickly as we might like. Uh, and particularly on, the, on my side, on the recruitment side and partnership side, I'm a one-person shop right now. Uh, our study abroad office has also had some uh, uh, staff reductions just due to our attrition during the pandemic, and now we're looking at uh, filling one or two of those uh, and bringing back staff, and uh, not bringing back, but hiring new staff. Uh, but there's there's real challenges involved in this market, and I've heard from several colleagues that have been hiring for months now, uh, that one of which is highlighted in the article here, uh, that uh, they have two or three positions open, and the pool of applicants uh, is, is very small, uh, and that uh, they've had to close searches and reopen searches. And uh, that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of bandwidth away from what you might want to be able to do on a regular basis. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a challenge to, to, and, a, and a shame, frankly, uh, that uh, that there, there aren't enough people in the, mar- in the pools now. Part of that is retirements. Part of that is um, a lot of the service providers have snapped up some of the top talent uh, that might have been looking to jump ship when uh, start, things started going south in the pandemic, uh, and that certainly happened. Uh, I'm kind of a reverse of it. I was having, running my own consulting business, and I still do that on the side, but uh, I'm now a full-time employee at UNLV, uh, but I work fully remote uh, from home in Ohio. Uh, would that have been possible pre-pandemic? Probably not as much. I know there are a few people have, have been able to do that, um, but my position is not a direct student contact position. It's mar- working with partners around the world, and uh, that requires me to travel uh, abroad three or four times a semester. Uh, probably going to be doing more of that in the spring as well as we look to broaden our scope and our partnerships uh, abroad through agents, institutions, scholarship agencies, all of that. Uh, that's part of our, our vision to grow international at uh, UNLV. So uh, the question about... Uh, Am I an uh, my an anomaly? No, I'm probably I'm going to be more common in the in the in the weeks and months and years to come. Uh, remote employees that uh, uh, that uh, that show, frankly, what I think is required of of institutions to really to make that leap forward. I think when it comes to student facing uh, positions, you you can't avoid being in being on campus and in person. Uh, there's uh, just a real need for that, and particularly post-pandemic. So I think um, if, if you're not in that kind of a position where you're dealing more with partners and more of the B2B, B2B side rather than the uh, college to student side, I think uh, you, 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 you may have more, more opportunities for what I'm doing, for example. But the NAFSA article does have a few suggestions. And uh, when this article came out on my LinkedIn feed this week, one, one commentator uh, made the point of saying that, hey, uh, it's the new reality. Suck it up. And uh, if you can't find the talent in, in, in regular searches, then you got to uh, 
grow, grow, raise the talent up yourself in, on campus. Identify people on campus that you can bring in and uh, maybe make uh, uh, train them up. Uh, there's always training that happens with any new position, any new job. Uh, I've certainly had to go through a lot of that, uh, kind of understanding how processes work at a new institution. That's that's normal. But uh, I'm, I'm in a position where I don't necessarily need to be trained up on how to recruit internationally. I've been do and doing this a bit. So, but there are that, that might be something you have to do uh, to help uh, and really spend the time as a mentor, as a, as a true leader, and, and raising up and training folks in, in, on campus to take these positions if you can't find it through search. It's the, perhaps the least, well, should it be the least favorable? Probably not. Uh, but it, is it seen as the least favorable because you, you want to bring in someone that can really hit the ground running, who knows the industry and all of that? Uh, there's, there are trade-offs, certainly. Uh, so that part of one of the requirements or one of the suggestions the NAFSA article makes is change your hiring criteria, uh, focus on team building, rethink long-standing obstacles like like potentially working remote, uh, and and salary salary scales and all of that. Implement implement new staffing structures that addresses some of these concerns in the past that shows pathways for growth. Uh, that's something that uh, millennials and uh, those coming next in in the Gen. A, whatever that uh, generation will be, like my son is going to be in Gen A when he graduates college and uh, is uh, looking for jobs, uh, that uh, the immediacy of, uh, of advancement is something that uh, needs to be addressed, at least uh, expectations be made clear of what uh, pathways would be for advancement. So that matters uh, to, to younger graduates uh, coming into the working, working world. So are you, are you allowing that uh, those discussions to be had? Uh, they also reference making, uh, allowing flexibility where possible. Uh, that, uh, in, as I mentioned, the student-facing roles maybe not being uh, able to do remote, uh, but maybe there's some flexibility that allows that two or three days a week. Uh, just some of that flexibility needs to be built in. Uh, the challenge also at institutions right now for hiring is so many of our HR departments are, are understaffed, uh, and they, they took a big hit during the pandemic as well. Uh, so uh, until they get back fully up to staff, up, up and staffed, then it might, that process for hiring may get lengthened uh, considerably. But there's still uh, certainly a lot that can and needs to be done to address uh, the, the severe shortages we do face in a lot of uh, a lot of institutions around the country. So, again, no easy answers here, but w certainly a process that uh, will involve multiple layers at your institution uh, beyond just your office and your supervisor and your dean or VP, whatever it might be. Uh, it's going to be HR involved. It's going to be other business processes that are going to need to be involved in this if you're going to make real change uh, and rehire or hire uh, and get it back up to full staff in what your new normal will be. And if you're in growth mode as an institution internationally, it could be even more of a challenge as you look to fill multiple positions uh, each year. So we'll see how, how that develops. And I'm sure this will be a topic that uh, we'll be chatting about for months, if not years to come. Now let's uh, segue nicely into our final uh, topic of the day, and that is could pathway providers be evolving their approach? Now, pathway providers in the traditional sense in the United States and in the UK and other, other destination markets have typically meant having a third party, uh, and there's a raft of uh, pathway providers out there. You've, probably, you've heard of Intu, you've heard of Shorelight, you've heard of Navitas, Study Group, uh, Oxford International, you've heard of some of these types of uh, pathway providers that exist. Now, in the past, they have uh, run the gamut of 
uh, we'll provide uh, a, a new group of students each year that will come into what we're calling a pathway program on your campus where we'll use your facilities, uh, could even create their own English language program in addition to what you might have on your own campus, uh, could be a in extreme cases, building a building uh, on campus and having a 30-year lease on that building. Uh, there's a few campuses that went down that road with one of the providers that uh, some of which are backing out of or trying to find their way out of those relationships because they haven't been uh, producing as, as significantly as they perhaps had hoped. And uh, the there's also legal teams getting involved with all of that fun stuff, but uh, that that's the kind of model that had worked where it's a, a pathway program on your campus. Um, that has changed over the last uh, years. The pandemic has certainly uh, adjusted the expectations of uh, many of these providers and realizing that that uh, bricks and mortar kind of approach to a pathway program perhaps isn't the best model moving forward. Uh, and in terms of success or lack of success, they might have seen in certain uh, countries and certainly here in the U.S. that significant challenges that way. Uh, the last article that I'm sharing is uh, from the Pi, and it's about uh, Into, one of those pathway providers that is doing things a bit different. They're, instead of uh, having pathway provider or pathway programs on different U.S. college campuses, uh, they are moving to a model where they have uh, I think it's 11 centers that they're going to be building in the next year, in the next, uh, in 2023, in uh, 11 different countries. Uh, I think it's 11 countries, 11 locations at least around the world. Uh, the first one, uh, first of which is happening in Colombia, uh, in Bogota. Uh, they're having this as a center for students to come do pathway programs that would be um, seen as transferable or ad admissions pathways into their uh, network of uh, of, of universities that are their existing partners or potentially new partners. So instead of having them come to campus for that pathway program where they may or may not get their visa, challenges with English, English language program only, visas, uh, all those kind of issues are involved there. So instead of that, in the Ascend2 model might uh, would involve students going to this pathway provider program in country, in their home countries. Ascend2 is focusing on 11 destinations for this, or 11 places around the world where these uh, pathway programs would be set up, physical centers set up, and then students would apply while they're in that pathway program to their destination universities in the US, UK, wherever else uh, the partnerships exist. So it's a way to um, cut the time that the student is uh, spending in the United States, reduces, uh, leaves, gives them more options perhaps if they're at a single center uh, that might be looking to go um, one of potentially seven, eight, ten different partners that this uh, pathway provider has in different countries. Uh, it cuts down on the challenges with visas because by the time they're done with the pathway program, their English would be at the minimum, exceed the minimum standards to be admitted directly into those programs on the home campus in the U U.S. or U.K. Uh, so there, there's a real advantage potentially in this model. Uh, it doesn't always guarantee that you're going to get students as directly as having them come to your campus for that pathway program. Uh, and that the necessity of that on-campus experience for a pathway, yes, it's a jump start on uh, their, their time at your institution, but it potentially uh, 
it's extra costs. It's potentially not getting their visas. Uh, and then maybe they're having their heads turned uh, once they're there. But uh, that process all happens now while they're in, country, while they're in their home countries uh, doing that pathway program itself, but having the options open. So, and how you recruit to them is, I don't know the details yet of how that will work for partner institutions for this into center uh, around the world or centers around the world. But that certainly is a very different option. Uh, and it's probably a recognition of the, um, the long-term unfeasibility, unfeasibility, infeasibility, infeasibility of uh, the bricks and mortar centers that they've had on college campuses across the U.S. Uh, they've fared, uh, some have fared better than others, uh, both in the U.S. and the U.K., but uh, it's a, 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 a admit, admonition or an admission that there needs to be a flexibility of approach. Uh, to these pathway providers. You've also seen some of the pathway providers, Shorelight and others, that have developed online versions of their pathway programs that allow students to do from anywhere and still keep them on track for a particular institution that they may have expressed interest in. So those are the models are changing, and I think that's a good thing because uh, the, the on-campus models probably weren't as long-term sustainable as we thought they might have been. So it uh, will be interesting to see how those conversations develop with the different providers and how these, uh, in, in the example of Intu, these uh, global hubs kind of pop up and how, uh, how well that they are received as, uh, as enrollments pick up for, for future. But uh, we'll definitely be keeping our eyes on that and encourage you to do so as well. Please uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, give us a favorable rating so others can find us in the industry. We always mention it here on, on the Roundup and through our newsletter, but certainly want to uh, encourage you that if you're enjoying this content, please uh, like and subscribe and share and do all those wonderful things that uh, can help others around our profession uh, find this information and hopefully better benefit from it. So thanks everybody for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you in the, the coming weeks and months. And just a quick note, programming note, we will be continuing the roundups uh, both next uh, Wednesday the 21st and the 28th of December. Uh, so no break from the roundups. We'll, you'll be able to get those uh, uh, store, uh, stored up for, uh, for the new year in case you're on a two-week break for, uh, from, from your institutions. So until next time, have a wonderful day. Cheers.